the thing is when you're in the multifamily business, you are not in the real estate business. You're in the contract business. Best ever listeners, before we get into today's episode, I want to mention Trevor McGregor. Trevor is a real estate results coach. I've been paying him and working with him for years now. He actually is responsible for giving me the idea to do a podcast. So it's not only about transactions that he gives advice on how to find more deals, how to make more money, but also how to build a holistic plan around your real estate entrepreneurship endeavors. That's what I love about working with Trevor, that and being held accountable for what I say I'm going to do and actually making sure that I follow through and do it. I feel like I'm a pretty results-oriented, accountable kind of person, but it's always nice to have someone who's there guiding you along the way and giving you strategy as well as psychology tips for how to deal with you know the things that come up as a real estate entrepreneur. Trevor has made a wonderful offer for the best ever listeners, and that is that he's offering a free coaching session. Go to coachwithtrevor.com. That's C-O-A-C-H-W-I-T-H-T-R-E-V-O-R.com. Highly recommend him. I've worked with him before. I'm currently working with him right now as my business, as my real estate investing coach. Highly recommend you do the same. Take him up on his offer. Get a free coaching session, coachwithtrevor.com. Hi, Best Ever listeners. Welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever show. My name's Joe Fairless, and this is a show where we cut out all that fluffy real estate talk and we get straight to the real estate advice that moves your business forward. We've spoken to Barbara Corcoran on the show from Shark Tank, Robert Kiyosaki, the author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and many other wonderful Best Ever guests. And today, same darn thing. How you doing, Charles Dobbin? Hello. How are you, Joe? Good to talk with you. Yeah, nice to talk with you too. And really looking forward to our conversation, especially since you're focused and specialized in working with multifamily investors. A little bit about Charles, and then he'll get into it in more detail. He's an attorney who, as I mentioned, specializes in working with multifamily investors. He has owned 800 units himself, as well as been involved in close to $1 billion worth of transactions for investors. He's no, an owner, an operator, a syndicator, and he uh, has owned his own property management company as well. He's based in Boston, Massachusetts, and you can say hi to him and check out his company at multifamilyinvestingacademy.com. There will also be a link to this in the show notes page. With that being said, Charles, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on? Sure. I mean, as an attorney, I uh, represent my clients who are looking to buy apartment complexes, making sure they do it the right way. And, uh, you know, part of what I do is also teach people how to do it uh, through the Multifamily Investing Academy. And, you know, the whole point is I've done it. I have owned, operated, and I've gone through the very beginning uh, of, uh, you know, syndicating deals and, you know, analyzing deals. And what happened was back when I was, I was doing a lot of buying, I noticed that the attorneys that I worked with in different parts of the country were, were great attorneys. They, they could close escrow. They could do title searches. They could do all of those things, but they couldn't tell me if, they were, if I was buying a good deal or not. And that's kind of when I came to the realization that was a huge need in the marketplace for somebody to act like an attorney, to represent people at the very beginning of the transaction, to make sure they're doing it right. 
Uh, and if they're not doing it right, they could end up with a real uh, you know, bad deal in their hands. Uh, and I wanted to make sure that I could help people uh, do it correctly. So that's that's how I started representing clients strictly on the multifamily side. I absolutely love it. It is a blast. It is it is uh, the thing I, I do best, I'd like to think, in the world. And, and uh, that's why that's my entire focus is working with new investors. When you talk about making sure investors buy apartment communities the right way, what would be the right way? What do you look for? Well, as far as the, the, the bones of the deal, the the numbers have to make sense first off. It is, you know, the, the thing is when you're in the multifamily business, you are not in the real estate business. You're in the contract business. And what you're buying is cash flow that is generated from contracts. And it's those contracts that have to be correct uh, and the, the, you know, what you have to do is look at the real estate as nothing more than a factory that generates the product, which are the contracts. And so I want to sit down and teach people that before you get out there and you kick the tires and you walk through every single unit, you've got to make sure that that deal is right from the very beginning. And, you know, I'll tell you, it's amazing how sellers and brokers are always trying to pull the wool over your eyes and hide the hide the problems of the property and you don't they don't want you to find out about it until you buy it uh, and that's the last thing you want to do is is buy somebody else's problem and so you know there are different ways that you can find out and different ways to protect yourself through the transaction process to make sure that you don't get yourself in that type of a situation when you say you know the numbers have to make sense, what to you would make sense for from a number standpoint, and how how do you approach it? Well, you know that uh, you can't pigeonhole anybody or even me into saying it's got to be a double digit uh, cash on cash return. It's got to be a cap rate of X. What you really need to understand is what is the flavor of the money of your investors. If it's you that is putting up all of this money to buy these properties, what type of a cash on cash return are you looking for? Or, or if you're looking to go out there and syndicate deals, what is the flavor of the money of the people you, the, that want to invest with you? Like, for instance, you know, people say, oh, you know, you got to have a double, you know, a 16% cash on cash return or I'm not interested in the deal. Okay, then I know, now know what type of deal I'm going to put you in. But if my grandmother is looking to invest with me, she's not looking for a 16% cash on cash return deal. She, that's too risky for her. She's looking for a single digit safe, secure uh, piece of real estate that's going to re- provide good returns on a regular basis. That's what she's looking for. So it really depends upon the flavor of the investor's money to determine what type of deal they're looking for. And that's what a lot of people, uh, new investors don't realize. They, they go to these meetings and they find these people who tell them they've got money to invest and they want to invest in apartments. And then the investor goes out there and finds a deal and goes running back to that cash investment and says, I got one for you. Let's invest. Why don't you invest with me? And then they find out the guy looks at the deal and says, oh, this isn't what I was looking for. He says, well, well, geez, you got to ask the tough questions first. Ask the investor. When somebody tells you that they have money, ask them, well, what's it going to take for you to invest in one of my deals? What type of returns are you looking for? What, you know, what's your strategy? And really get to know that investor first and then find a deal that meets their money. And that's how you do it. When you're raising money for a deal – what what are some of the things you stay away from when you're raising the money and what are some of the things that you actively do to be successful for raising money in a deal? And it may be you or, or your client. Right. So what I teach my clients to do is to get to know the investor. 
I mean, I've heard these things about people doing reggae's where they they think they can put uh, their deal up on a billboard and raise money that way. That's the worst way, in my opinion. That's the worst way to get out there and find this money. And the reason being is you've got to build a relation. These people are going to be members of your limited liability company if that's how you structure your deal. They're going to be members. They're going to be partners with you in the transaction. You want to know who your partners are. You want to know who you're working with. So when you get out there and start looking for money, sit down with these potential investors. Break bread with them. Get to know them. Know their kids' names. Really start to build a relationship with them. Because ultimately, as you start moving through the process of buying more and more properties, you only want to deal with one or two potential investors. You want to find those big money guys who will just write you a check and get the deal done. You don't want to have to get out there and find a whole bunch of investors. You want to be able to get to know those people that can make the deal happen with one stroke of their pen. And that's how you want to build your business ultimately. When we're talking about investors and and getting to know them, how do you establish the circle of, of investors within your proximity to in, invest in your deals? Because some people might think they might not have them in their community or circle of friends right now. Right. And so what you do is, and this is the toughest thing for new investors, they don't realize that I don't care how you, how you describe this business. It's a sales and marketing business. You are always in sales and marketing when you're in the multifamily real estate business. You're marketing your product, which is your, are your units. You're marketing your deals which, to your investors. You're marketing yourself. You're constantly marketing. So that's a tough uh, a tough label to put on some of, some of these investors. They don't like to look at themselves as sales and marketing people. So they have to be, you know, what I do is I teach them how to, how to approach people in a very passive way that it doesn't feel like they're putting on the hard sell. So what you do is you sit down with, with anyone and everyone and you tell them what you're doing I'm out there. I'm looking for apartments. I'm looking to, uh, you know, I, I look for properties that uh, meet certain criteria. And then you ask them this question. Do you know anyone that might be interested in investing in apartments? And that's it. You see, you're not asking them if they're interested in investing in apartments because that creates a conflict between the two of you. You're asking them, do you know anyone? Can you help me find people who might be interested? And what happens in that case is two things. Right away, it, 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 the person you're speaking to wants to help you. They like you. They, you know, they're they're um, interested in investing in apartments. And so they're going to, yeah, you should give this guy a call because he's, he's – um, he uh, invests in th these types of things, and I know he's got money. Great, thanks. Can I use your name? Yes, please do. So that becomes very passive. But the other thing that happens is the person will look, well, wait a minute. This sounds pretty good. I would like to invest in this type of thing. Oh, you would? Jeez, I was, didn't even think that you might want to. Great, let's talk more about it. So right away, you've, you've made it a very easy way to approach these potential investors and ask them for money. As you just ask them for their help. And that's how you do it. I'm going to switch gears a little bit. What, what's been the most challenging thing that you've come across on your own por portfolio when dealing with an apartment community? Oh, man. <laughs> Joe, can you be a little more specific? Um, <laughs> you know, there's so many things. It's a, it's a, it, there are a lot of moving parts on a business. I guess, I guess ultimately what I'd have to say is property management companies. Now, I own my own property management company. I know that you know, there's so many of these gurus out there that, that teach you to you know, 
put, you know, hire a third-party property management company, put it on autopilot, put it on remote control, put your feet up, and just let the money come through. Well, that's never been the the um, my experience, and my experience has been that the business model for a third-party management company is flawed. When I can lose, you know, I have a property that generates $100,000 a month in gross revenues, and I pay 5% of that to a property management company. At that number, at 100,000, I pay them, uh, you know, $5,000. If my occupancy drops by 20%, and it has done that in the past, I'm now, I lost $20,000. How much did he lose? He only lost 1,000. Well, now he's got to go out there and work hard to get me that other $20,000 back, but he only earns an extra 1,000. So how hard is he going to work to getting me my $20,000 back? And what I found is that property management companies, they don't love the, my babies as much as I do. And so, you know, we've had um, some bad experiences with property management companies. So what we ended up doing is uh, going out there and starting our own, third, uh, our own property management company for our own properties. And it has worked out beautifully. I have total control over my business. I know where my numbers are. I know where my cash is. I've, I, I take very good care of my employees and everything runs very smoothly. So that is... Uh, some of the problems I've had with property management companies were probably the biggest problems I've had in this industry. With the the property management or the the uh, property management company that you have in place right now, how um, how did you establish that? Like, what, can you take us through the process yeah. for creating that? Yeah. Okay. The, I was very very lucky, and and I that luck can easily rub off on any of your uh, any of your listeners as soon as they hear what happened. So. You know, I'm at a kid's softball game uh, here in my town, and I'm standing talking to this guy, and he says, what do you do? I said, well, I'm an attorney. I you know, own uh, and operate apartment complexes. And he says, hey, do you know this guy, uh, Jeff Ecker? I said, no, who is he? He says, well, he lives here in town. He's a CPA. He owns property, too. You should talk to him. So I call, I sit down, I have lunch with Jeff, and we you know, have a nice lunch, and we go our separate ways. Two years later, Jeff Ecker calls me up and says, hey, I am going out on business uh, for myself. I am hanging out my shingle as a property management accountant. And I said, what is that? What do you mean? What are you going to do? He says, he says, the biggest problem property owners have with their property management companies is the accounting. And I said, man, you, 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 you're preaching to the choir right now because I just had to spend $6,000 for my CPA to clean up the books uh, of my property management company before I filed my taxes. He goes, yeah. So what I'm doing is I'm going to act as the back shop for property management companies or for owners and, and investors, and I'm going to handle the financial component. I'm, we're going to use the Yardy uh, management system, and I'm going to you know handle all the all the money. And I said, oh, okay, so. I can take that component of the management away from my property management company, and you're going to do it here in our town. He says, yep, that's how it's going to work. I said, great. I called my property management company. I said, next month, I'm handling all the financial management of the property, and uh, you know, you guys are just going to be boots on the ground. And I said, okay, fine. So I, I negotiated a, a deal with them where they reduced my management fee, and I paid it to my accountant. Within three months, I got a such a better handle on how my properties were being run from a financial standpoint. And I was shocked at what the property management companies were doing to me. And that's when I decided I'm going to fire all my property management companies and I'm going to bring everything in house. And I could do that because I had the system in place and I had total financial control. 
And from that point on, it was very easy for me to run my property management companies because I already had the toughest part of the of setting up that business already in place, and that's the financial management and the the Yardy uh, system, uh, the property management system. And I, from that point on, everything has run so smoothly from uh, for my business. How'd you get the boots on the ground? I hire, uh, my wife actually is a business consultant and she does all of our hiring. So we would go out there and hire uh, staff, would interview them over uh, time and we would hire them, train them and they would report to us. And it was actually, I tell you, it was a lot easier. We had so much more control when we managed the employees ourselves than we had when we had the third party management company deal with it. And how many employees do you have? You know, I had about 10 employees on the different properties that I have. Uh, one of the complexes that we have, uh, they are not my employees because it is a special uh, qualified uh, asset, tax qualified property that requires a particular uh, type of property management company that we're not uh, certified for. So that in that one particular property, we don't handle the boots on the ground. With 10 employees, how much time does that take you and what are those conversations like? You know, it, it, it really depends upon the quality of the asset. When I have like on my A-class properties, I speak to them once a week. And if there's any problem, they contact me. On my B and C class properties, those take more management and more time. So I'm more involved in the, in the, the running of those properties than I am on the other better quality assets. So I, you know, A class properties once a week on a good week. Uh, the B and C class properties, it could be every other day that I'm just checking in, making sure things are going fine. I get a Monday morning ma- Monday morning management report where I look at the numbers and I track to see what the trends are so I know exactly what's going on in that property. I pay the bills. I watch the cash flow. We control the cash. So I keep tabs on that every single day. And because of the, you know, the RD system is all online, it's in the cloud, I can look up anything instantaneously wherever I am. What's specifically in that Monday morning management report? Okay, it's going to be, it runs by week. So uh, for the month, I get to see everything on, a, on essentially a trailing four-week report. Um, I look to see what the occupancy is today. I look to see what the, uh, what the uh, new leases are, vacants, uh, rent readies. Uh, you know, so f- from a physical standpoint, from a physical vacancy standpoint, I get that information. Then I look at the delinquencies. I look to see how far we, how much we've collected, uh, what percentage we've collected for the month so far, who hasn't paid, uh, who's over 30 days, who's over 60 days, what where we are in the eviction process for those people. Then I look at the uh, work orders. How many work orders do we get? How many work orders do we complete? How many work orders are still outstanding? Geez, I'm trying to do this off the top of my head because there's a whole other section down there as to what what it is that we cover. But that's essentially it. And I'm, I look at it and I, I want to make sure that we work. Our vacancy is down. I want to make sure that our collections are going well. I hate seeing delinquencies. I, I you know, we start the eviction process right away, and work orders are need to be done immediately because uh, that ties into how well I'm managing my staff as well. How do you manage them remotely through that? I, I know you, we've, we've kind of talked about it, but I mean, specifically, like how, where, you live in Boston, right. near Boston, yep. and where are your properties? They're in Michigan, they're in Tennessee, and then we just sold two of our properties in Michigan, and uh, we had sold uh, two of our properties down there in Kentucky as well. So Okay, so Michigan, Tennessee, Kentucky. Yeah. 
how are you like when you get this weekly report, this Monday morning management report, and you are basically the property management company? How are you able to track that things are being done from a, we'll say, a maintenance request standpoint? Yeah, I mean, I can see it from the Yardie system when the report, when the uh, management report goes in or the work order goes in, the Yardie system tracks all of that information for me. So I can see what needs to be done. If the guy isn't doing anything, if there aren't any work orders, I've got him on a, on a uh, maintenance program. So he's, he's doing something. So, you know, I, I know that he's, he's tracking it. Now, let me back up a little bit and say that the management that we put on our, on our property is excellent. I mean, if they don't we're, – we're slow to hire and we're quick to fire. And one of the ways that we find good people is we get in with the local apartment association's president. So we find out who the local apartment association is and we get to know the president. And when we need somebody, we need the right person, we contact the president of the apartment association. And I tell you, that has always given us great leads as to who we should hire for our property. That has given us in in two of our complexes, we have the best person in the marketplace working for us. And we got them from the apartment association's president both times. Charles, what's your best real estate investing advice ever? Take it slow. Take it slow. I mean, you, you, can, you can be a multi-multi-millionaire in this business in the next 10 years, but all you need to do is buy an apartment building today or in the next year for, with 20 units. That's all you need. Start off with 20 units. You don't have to go big right away. Start with 20, and every year, double the amount that you own, and within five years, you'll be over 1,000 units just by starting slow. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Yeah, go ahead. All right. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. Did you achieve all your real estate goals in 2015? Well, if you did, congratulations. Fist bump to you. If you didn't, then go to coachwithtrevor.com. Trevor McGregor is my business coach, my real estate coach. He's also been a guest on the show, episode 320. He is offering a free coaching session for the best ever listeners. Just go to coachwithtrevor.com and it'll help you to achieve your real estate goals in 2016. Best ever book you've read? Oh, uh, Emith Re- Re- Revisited. How come? Oh, because uh, it taught me what I, I didn't know I had learned uh, working three years at McDonald's in high school, that to build a good, solid business, you need systems. And you need systems in place that, uh, that will allow you to just transition out of that job and let somebody else do it. Now, on that note, with you being taking on the role and responsibility of a property management company, how do you reconcile that? Oh, very easy. I mean, I have systems. I uh, Monday morning, I get my report in. I know exactly what I need to do, and I know what, they, what they're supposed to be doing. And every month, I get my monthly reports. I know exactly what I need to do when I see those reports. I know how they need to look, and I know what my actions have to be afterwards. So everything is set up as a system, and I know exactly what needs to happen on each system. Best ever personal growth experience and what'd you learn from it? Oh my gosh, wow. Uh, best ever personal growth experience. Um, running the marathon, setting the goal, knowing that I could do it or not knowing that I could do it, but knowing that if I took, I did a little bit every single day that I could, uh, I, I could achieve anything I set my mind to. Best ever deal you've done? Oh, probably the best ever deal I did, did have done is the deals that I didn't do. Probably the... Uh, the best deal I ever did was a 40-unit apartment complex uh, where we bought it the right way, which I mean is we uh, put down 
25% on the deal. We financed it. We didn't over leverage it. And it was a nice class A property that was easy to maintain and easy to run. Best ever way you like to give back? Oh, just by helping people any way I possibly can. You know, I just love what I do now. And I, people are amazed that they're that I'm approachable, that they can pick up the phone and call me, that I answer questions, uh, because I just don't want anybody to make the same mistakes I've made. On that note, perfect segue. What's the biggest mistake you've made? Oh man, buying a property for the wrong reasons. Uh, buying a property not because it was such a great deal, but buying it because it was a deal, and uh, you know, just to get add to my portfolio. Because um, you know we were probably hadn't purchased anything in a while, and you know we're looking to do a deal and, and benefit from from all the benefits of doing a transaction, and uh, it wasn't a good deal. And uh, as a result, we were hoodwinked, and the seller, you know, there was fraud in the contract from the seller that we never picked up on until we owned the property, and it just became an absolute disaster. So that was probably the biggest mistake I ever made. What were the numbers on it and what was the specific fraud in the contract? Okay. Don't the numbers are kind of irrelevant. The numbers it was a good deal going in. It looked like a good deal going in. But let me talk to you about the fraud just so everybody can understand uh, this. It was a an assumption and I I teach so much on assumptions and how to protect yourself uh, when you're doing an assumption. Assumptions are not easy. I don't I don't like them. I don't rec- recommend them, but you can protect yourself uh, on assumptions uh, w- if you put the right clauses in the contracts. The problem with this is the bank dragged its feet. The, the contract went on for over five months. The money went hard. We're still waiting for an answer from the bank. During that period of time, the seller had to certify the rent rolls every single month. Every single month, we received certified rent rolls. Now, the way the contract was originally drafted was we could only be on the property to do the inspection for the first 30 days. After that, we couldn't go on the property. So from the time that we completed the inspection to the time that the bank finally wrapped up their work, there was, Uh-oh. yeah, there was about four months that we never got on to look at the property again. And what the guy was doing was he was maintaining the occupancy level as was required by the bank by taking other properties that he owned, leases, whiting out the name of the property on the lease, inserting the, the subject property's name and then sending that in as if it was a valid a valid lease. So if you looked at everything on the outside, everything looked absolutely fine. So we re, we took over that property with a 97% occupancy. That thing was cash flowing beautiful. Cha-ching. Yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> By the end of the first month, our numbers looked like crap. And I called up the property management company. I said, where's my money? What's going on? He goes, Charlie, I've never seen a bigger case of fraud in my life. I said, you can't just say fraud. you got to prove fraud. Um, what, what have you got? He goes, Charlie, we got 50% occupancy. I said, you're kidding me. He says, no, we got 50% occupancy. I said, well, where did everybody go? He goes, and the way he said is, we've got 50% occupancy, and there hasn't been one moving truck pulled up to the building yet, meaning these people didn't exist. There was nobody yeah. to move out. And so we realized right then and there that, and, and I said, I said, prove it to me. He said, how do you know this fraud? He goes, take a look at these six leases. And he faxed me the six leases. And I look at them. I said, okay, why are you sending me these le- leases? These leases are clearly for some other property. 
He goes, yeah, exactly. They're for some other property. But these leases are all virtually identical to the other leases. In other words, the six that I just sent you, the property manager forgot to white out the name of the property. All the other times they had whited out the name and handwritten in the name of this property. So this property, so these other six leases, we could easily see that he was grabbing leases from other properties that he owned and sticking them into this deal. Wow. Yeah. Who is, you mentioned certified rent rolls. What's the uh, importance of certified? You know, certified means nothing more than the guy signs off on the validity of that rent roll when he sends it to you. So you'll see his signature and a date on it. And that's all you get. But what you're doing is you're providing support in the event that there's ever fraud like this again. You've got support that this guy lied to you. That he said this was a was a certified rent roll, but this person didn't exist, and this person's not living there, and you know these numbers don't don't add up. You uh, you created fraud in the inducement essentially by indu- by telling us that this property was running at ninety seven percent when it was running at fifty. You lied to us, and here's the proof. So that's what you ask for in certified. It's, I mean, you know, is, what was the result? What was the result of it? Oh, the 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 property we gave it back to the bank. We gave it back to the bank, said, you guys are just as, as guilty on this as, as he is because you guys you know, were, were approving that rent roll as well. And so we, we essentially lost the property. We, get, we had to give it back. So that is why that has got to be one of the worst deals I ever did. And you lost the money, the yep. payment? Yep, about $300,000. Mm. Yep, that's and why. There's, there's, and that, there's no le- legal uh, repercussions? You know, when you think about what it's going to take and what you have to prove and how much in legal fees you're going to spend – and how much of your life is going to be tied up in dealing with this? At some point, you just got to cut your losses and move on. Use it as a learning experience. And I'll tell you something. In my due diligence class that I teach, I teach all of my students, this is the type of thing you look out for. And so that's why I got to tell you, Joe, one of the reasons why I'm a good teacher is because I've lived this stuff. I know where all the bodies are buried. Right. Uh, with, with that, did you have investors in the deal? Yep. Yep. And, and how that conversation go? It was not a good conversation. It was certainly a tough conversation, but you know something? It, it, it had to be done. I mean, you just have to be totally straight and honest with your investors and say, this is what happened. And, you know, uh, this is, uh, you know, th- th- this is the result. And uh, nobody wanted to hear it. And we didn't want to say it, but you know, when you get an investment, sometimes things go wrong and sometimes you lose your money. So, yeah. And what do you do now to prevent or attempt to mitigate that from happening again? Oh, okay. So what you do now is when you write the purchase and sale agreement, you don't put a provision in there that limits the amount of time that you that you can inspect the property. So in other words, you got 30 days typically to do your, your property inspection, but it doesn't mean that you're limited then to just 30 days to go on the property and look at look at it. With 24-hour notice, you're going to tell the seller, I'm going to come back on the property. I want to go back through every single unit three days before we close. Oh, no, no, that's not out there. You're not going to do that. That's not in the contract. Read the contract. And this is what all my students get, get my template uh, uh, contracts. Read the contract. I'm allowed at any time to come back on that property and inspect, and I'm going to do it. So that's one of the things you do. The other thing you do is if you're doing an assumption – the problem with an assumption is that there's a third person on the, at the table with you, at the negotiating table, and it's the bank. Now, you might negotiate a phenomenal smoking hot deal with the seller, but if the bank doesn't like it, it's not going to go through. 
And the bank probably won't even tell you this until two weeks before you're set to close. So for instance, if you go in there and you negotiate a deal with the seller that you only require 10% down, 10% down and you get this baby. And you go, hey, this is a great deal. I'll, I'll buy this. I only have to come up with 10%. So you get in a deal with the, with the seller and you negotiate 10% the purchase price at such, such and such a price so that you only have to put 10% down. And the bank says, that's a great deal, but we want you to put more skin in the game. Well, no, I can't put any more skin in the game. I just negotiated this price. It's under contract. You have an assumption. I'm assuming the note, the debt is already set. So there's no room for me to have to put in any more money. I only have to come up with 10%. And the bank says, that's a great deal. Congratulations. We want you to have more skin in the game. And you're like, what are you talking about? It says, we want you to put another 10% in a bank account with our bank and just let it sit there. And you're like, what are you kidding me? That's going to screw up all my numbers. That's going to change my cash on cash return. That's going to re require me to have to go out and raise another 10% from my investors. And they said, yep, that's right. If you want to do this deal, you've got to put 20% skin in the game. That's how this deal will be approved. And you're thinking to yourself, well, wait a minute. The bank is telling me this now. My earnest deposit money has already gone hard. If I say no to this, I lose my earnest deposit money. What do I do? Well, what we do now is in the purchase and sale contract, we, we, say, um, we say that if the bank changes any of the economic terms at any point in the transaction, we get to walk away with our earnest money deposit and uh, money doesn't go hard. And so that way we've totally protected ourselves from that third party that's sitting at the negotiating table. Love it. Really, really helpful. Really helpful on both of those points. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad that, that we, we had those couple stories because I think those, those, both, both those stories are, were um, – are, are good good lessons to be learned for for any multifamily investor, regardless of uh, numbers of years of experience. Right. What's the best ever place the best ever listeners can reach you? Oh, they can get me online. They can send an email to info at multifamilyinvestingacademy.com. or you know they can text my cell phone because I love texting. Uh, my cell phone number and I have no issue giving this out. It's seven eight one nine eight seven four seven six five. You can call me or, or I prefer text. Just tell me who you are and uh, I respond back pretty quickly. But yeah, that's, uh, that's how I do it. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your advice with the best ever listeners and talking about your experience as an active multifamily investor, as well as an attorney who specializes in working with multifamily investors. Uh, some of the takeaways, I mean, I have a lot, but I, I won't go through all of them. I'll just go through a couple um, one is your your uh, desire and how you've done the property management to take it in house. The desire to take it in house and the execution on it with both Yardi and your team members, and also the the local team members you have on the ground and how you're managing that. And then the uh, stories of uh, that you told at the very end of the fraud <laughs> in the contract, where you know the solution now is. You, when you write a purchase and sale agreement, you don't have a provision that limits the amount of time you have to be on the property um, as long as you give them 24-hour notice. And then the uh, purchase and sale agreement in the when a loan assumption is involved, you'll want to put in the contract that if the bank changes any economic terms at any point, you get your earnest money back. So those those points were were incredibly valuable and there are many many others uh looking forward to staying in touch and i hope you have a best ever day great thanks joe i appreciate it
Did you achieve all your real estate goals in 2015? Well, if you did, congratulations. Fist bump to you. If you didn't, then go to coachwithtrevor.com. Trevor McGregor is my business coach, my real estate coach. He's also been a guest on the show, episode 320. He is offering a free coaching session for the best ever listeners. Just go to coachwithtrevor.com and it'll help you to achieve your real estate goals in 2016.